a job can be that. It can be just a job, it, it, which, you know, works for a lot of people. So that is fine, right? Uh -huh. At Heinz, we strive to create a, a culture and a workplace where this is about a community that you're joining and the relationships that you have here and within the industry are not just transactional. And we happen to have quite long tenure compared to most companies. Hi, this is Matt Slepin and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded live at the Heinz office in Tribeca on September 14th, is a conversation with two leaders at Heinz, Stephanie Birnbaum, the Chief People Officer, and Doug Holty, the CEO of EXP by Heinz, the innovation team that leads both Heinz Global Ventures as well as the company's ESG efforts. Together, Steph and Doug talk about change and innovation at one of the most respected firms in our industry, a follow-up to my conversation with Gerald Hines back in 2018. That interview with Mr. Hines was one of the privileges of my career, and having him on the show set the bar for the industry legend conversations we've had on the show. The conversation with Steph is the first, but will not be the last conversation with a real estate chief human resources officer, of course, so relevant to the work that we do at ZRG around people, culture, and raising the bar on a company's business platform. Steph talks about the people changes necessary to move the company from its traditional development roots to also becoming a fully integrated global investment management platform. This is a heavy lift in the first place and with a particularly high bar given the prominence Heinz sets on its values and reputation. Indeed, my favorite part of the conversation with Doug's truly audacious words that we want to be a beloved brand. Words which you might usually throw out as just too highfalutin for anyone in the real estate space. But actually, if there's a company in the real estate business that could be worthy of those words, beloved brand, it might be Heinz. And you know me, I love any company in our industry even having the aspiration to occupy that lofty space. Let's all shoot high and higher. This resonates with part of our purpose with the show and part of my purpose as a recruiter within the industry. Let's go there, folks, and let's let Doug's words set a challenge for our industry to compete to achieve that kind of lofty goal. Since you'll probably not notice this, I have to call out an additional thank you to Doug. The theme music behind my intro and outro on the show is a now pretty old recording of me jamming something, something extremely simple and drony on the guitar. When I visited with Doug on a Zoom from home during COVID, he had his Martin D28 on the wall behind him. And I said, God, I got to play with this guy sometime. When we first planned this episode, Doug and I had hoped to have the time to write and record a special song for the intro today which we would have done remotely, but time got in the way of our ambitions. So we had Doug record an overdub on my music, so this episode, and maybe going forward, you'll hear the additional ambiance he brings on his guitar to the traditional intro. We'll play it again in the outro a little bit longer than usual, so you can hear it without the voiceover. Thank you, Doug, for also being on the show as a backup musician. As always, I hope that you're enjoying Leading Voices and that you'll find value and wisdom from this week's episode. If so, please recommend the show and your favorite episodes to your friends and colleagues. If you're catching these randomly, you should subscribe or follow the show on your favorite podcast app so that it will appear in your next up feed. Also, please do invite me as a contact on your LinkedIn so that I know who you are and I can keep in touch on new episodes. 
And if you have a few minutes, please rate the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. And as always, if you have comments, questions, or guest suggestions, or want to get in touch on how ZRG can help your company grow, expand, or think through your human capital needs, please email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Doug and Steph. Steph and Doug, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. I am at the Heinz office in New York with Steph today, and we're zooming in with Doug, who's in his office in Irvine. This should be a really cool conversation as we're exploring two areas of change and innovation at Heinz, one of the broadest and most respected companies within our industry. This is somewhat of a follow-up of a conversation that I had back in 2018 with Gerald Heinz himself in your offices in the Galleria in Houston. And it's also the prep for a conversation that I'm having with Steph, as well as Jill Kissack from Cushman and Wakefield at a ZRG event in New York in a week and a half. So I'm looking forward to that, looking forward to this. And we have a lot to talk about. And the last point is this is bookends to two different conversations I've had recently uh, on the evolution of the office business, which, Doug, I know we're going to talk about a lot here. Um, I had a conversation with Colin Connolly from Cousins and Scott Reckler from RxR. So we're kind of all on these same topics and going through lots of stuff. So thrilled to have you both. Maybe start with a quick introduction, like a one thirty-five second introduction from each of you. And Steph, since Doug already said something, I'll let you start. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much for, for having us. I'm very pleased to be here. So I'm, I'm Steph Bierenbaum. I'm the Chief People Officer here at Heinz, and I've been here for four years. I started my career in corporate HR at Tiffany & Company a variety of corporate you know, roles, and uh, then decided I should go back to grad school and maybe learn learn something more uh-huh. about how to do corporate HR at scale. So got my master's in social organizational psychology, and uh, then I caught the consulting bug and went to McKinsey, where I did global organizational health and talent consulting. Uh-huh. And then that led me here four years ago. Cool. Okay, I'm going to hear more about that pathway in a few minutes. Doug? Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here with Steph and have this conversation. I My adult life started after grad school where I joined Heinz to, to learn the craft of developing, owning, and, off, and managing office properties, which was the dominant business model at the time for Heinz. And we'll talk about how that's evolved over the years. And I spent two, two decades with Heinz in that capacity as a business partner with the family and then uh, was recruited to spend a decade advancing the strategy and growth of a West Coast-based property owner and manager of the Irvine Company as they were looking to uh, establish an innovative and growth mindset to become a more effective version of themselves as a community builder. That was a good professional and personal adventure. And then um, I made a decision three years ago to believe and to become independent and to invest in in, uh, property technology companies and to help property owners develop new concepts for for really establishing a healthy work week. It was an independent company called Agile Workweek Investments, and we had a good couple of years in a small uh, small format, but delivering some meaningful impact to the market. And that led me back to Heinz. And so a year ago, I was reconnected with Steph and uh, Laura Heinz-Pierce and David Steinbach, our chief investment officer. And we had a chance to exchange ideas about what Heinz was looking to do to establish a dedicated business unit for long horizon innovation and sustainability. And we'll share more about that. Cool. So when I think of Heinz, 
as you just alluded to, I think of office buildings. And in particular, I think of the Lipstick Building. I think of the Galleria where I met Mr. Hines. Uh, I think of 101 California. I know there's many more, but I think of office properties. And I know that you're much more than that now. So talk about the breadth and when the breadth started occurring out of that original office mindset and kind of what the breadth looks like today. And I'll let either of you take this. Steph, shall I start? And then maybe you can embellish and add to it and bring the, the full fullness of the human element into it. So um, you're right, Matt, that when, when J- Jerry Hines, Gerald D. Hines, began the company and really led it into a national enterprise in the 70s and 80s, the dominant product was premium office buildings and in premium locations in important U.S. cities. And then the, the company expanded geographically in the 90s to become a, a global provider of similar products and services, again, office properties. And probably that it's fair to say that that was driven in large part by Mr. Hines or Jerry's devotion to excellence in design and engineering of the most sophisticated real estate products in the market, which tended to be high-rise office buildings. And so it really was a great way to, to leverage his vision and standards and to then extend that through the workforce and business partners that, that joined him to deliver a portfolio of, of premium office buildings for premium office tenants, we would have called them at the time. As it evolved over time, we'll spend more more uh, of our conversation on this. The, fir- the firm under under his son Jeff's leadership, and now the third generation with Laura Hines Pierce and her siblings, have really expanded the view of what Hines can deliver to the marketplace, and that is to deliver spaces to live in, shop in, work in, and connect in. And so now the firm is is really diversified across four product types, including living spaces, workspaces, formerly known as office buildings. Logist, uh, logistics, which are spaces that allow the transmittive products across the world, and then uh, city center mixed use centers, uh, city center mixed use properties. So it's a much more diversified portfolio of properties and customers, but it really retains the original principles of, of excellence and ingenuity that, uh, that Jerry started many years ago. Mm-hmm. I'd add that it, it is also a very diversified way of creating value across the vertically integrated um, chain. So the, you know, the catalyst for my joining the firm was in 2018 when Jeff Hines and Laura Hines Pierce, together with Hasty Johnson, David Steinbach, Chris Hughes, decided to scale up our funds business uh-huh. globally. So this led to building what we now call investment management. We have a full suite of in- institutional vehicles across geographies, across the risk spectrum. But that was a huge move of really leaning into vertical integration. Heinz had, had always been on a journey to be more and more vertically integrated with having in-house property management, in-house engineering, and then over time adding to that integrated facilities management you know, and, and other services, um, but really deepening the connection now across to, to fund vehicles as well was a huge change in really shifting us not only from being an individual sport and in how we create value, but a real team sport and leaning into vertical integration even more. Uh-huh. I want to come back to individual sport versus team sport, but I also want to think about kind of the global footprint and investment management because you wind up buying as much stuff as you build. And I don't know that you only buy premium. Maybe you say you do, but I don't think you do. So how does that diversify up and down the spectrum a little bit further? So I might share a few thoughts on that. The global expansion was customer-driven in that the uh, many American companies in the 90s were beginning to ex- extend and expand their reach 
across to Asia and to Eastern and Western Europe. And so the firm, Heinz at the time, really was following the needs of its rent-paying customers, primarily, again, in office properties. But in some cases, that led us into residential and retail properties that serve the needs of expatriates and global companies. And so that geographic reach was was meaningful and 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 probably connected into the the deeper themes that continue to influence how we invest now. I guess it's also worth noting, Matt, that you mentioned investment management, queuing off of Steph's comment. That's really a a, continu- a logical continuation of the sense of stewardship, financial stewardship that Heinz always had, but putting it into a format that was really matching up with the desire of our investment partners to have scale and diversity. And so uh, both, both the, geogra- the geographic expansion and the introduction of, of you know, major funds in a family of funds format were, were both really kind of sensible evolutions of what the firm was trying to do even in previous cycles. Uh-huh. And in some of the acquisitions, I'm, I'm just picking at a little point here, but it's an interesting one to me because I've watched your evolution. Sometimes when you're buying stuff, you're buying B, you may be bringing B up to premium, but you're probably bringing B up to A minus at best if you're doing that in terms of what that investment thesis is. So I think some of the investment management, and I'm thinking of the fund you had with CalPERS, the old office fund, and that's what maybe got you started there with an old friend of mine, Dan McEachran, who you guys know or you know well, but that was it took you out of premium and premium also gets to an interesting discussion about where office is at today because premium is what's working so well. And any comments to that? Again, just the shifting downscale a little bit. Yeah, just a, a brief comment on that. I think that in the 90s, the firm recognized coming out of the, the deep downturn at the early part of that decade that uh, excellence and quality should be matched up with expectations of the stakeholders. So in some cases, there were communities and customer categories that viewed that the right quality was perhaps not as premium in product and service. And we also had investors, as you note, that were coming to Heinz looking for intelligent decision-making on how and when and what to buy and how well to operate it and when to perhaps dispose of it, but within the context of different categories of risk and, uh, and horizon. So in some cases, we had investors that wanted to have the opportunity to to, to through Heinz to purchase or build properties that could be well suited to a market expectation, but not beyond that market's expectation. Hey, that makes sense. Understood that that's where it winds up going. So I want to pick on another comment that you made, Doug, because I, I want to think of the specific words that you use, which are really interesting, because it may differ, Stephanie, as this company has evolved. Because you said in your first iteration with the company, you were a business partner with a family. And maybe in a Team game, business partner with the family is the old model versus what the new model is for both what the family means, what the overall business means, and that kind of thought of partnership. I think this has evolved a little bit, and Stephanie, maybe take that because it helps our listeners understand the evolution in your business as well. I would say that that has remained a core central tenet of our culture. The partnership mindset as well as the alignment structures uh-huh. that do help our our regional platforms to be completely aligned with the family on value creation. Uh-huh. Um, 
and, and the, the partnership that they have. So that is one thing that really fundamentally has not changed. Now, when it comes to operating model and pipeline decisions that are made, investment decisions that are made, I think that's where in the day-to-day process of enacting that partnership, what that looks like and feels like, uh-huh. that's where we've seen it evolve. I mean, you can you can be vertically integrated and really just focus on receiving most of the value of that at the P&L level. You know, different different business units and lines have uh, different impact through cycles and one offsets the other. And so, you know, being diversified and vertically integrated helps you just manage the P&L. But you can do that without really having those sub-business units interact with one another much on a day-to-day basis. But the way that we find we can create a lot of additional value at the asset level, at the fund level, is by not only being vertically integrated, but having a very integrated operating model where we're collaborating on pipeline, we're collaborating on investment decisions, you know, we're bringing the best of what our property level asset teams know to, you know, the the macro investment decisions that are being made by our fund teams. Uh Um, And so maybe that's a way that the partnership and team sport mindset has evolved but I can tell you from a fundamental structure and you know technical financial alignment perspective, that is one thing that has really stayed the same over the decades. And, and let me push on because I'm curious about this. And so for our listeners, we've explored in the past on the podcast what I'll call the, in quote, old Trammel Crow company model, which was you have regional partners. They're all guys, by the way, or they were all guys, except for a couple few. And they owned and managed their regions. And so they were the king of regions. And there were silos of sort by region. Then in the company that you're describing, that may still exist and may sit alongside things that cross-cut across the business because the AUM business and investment management is likely cross-cutting everywhere for everybody. So how do those coexist? And I believe that everyone's a partner. I believe everyone gets aligned and everyone cares fiduciarily both for the family and for the investors. So that there's no contradiction there. But how, how does the, hey, I'm a regional person and I run my roost here, how does that align with groups that are everywhere all the time? Yeah, it is true that the investment management business only works as an interdependent unit mm-hmm. with these regional platforms, right? Mm-hmm. There has to be interdependence for that to work. And so you know, back in 2018, when we began that that journey of really scaling up that business, I think the biggest people and cultural implication was that we had to start operating more like what we would call in in you know HR speak a matrixed organization, mm-hmm. right? Um, it is not a totally siloed, you know, purely decentralized organization because you don't get as much value that way. Mm-hmm. And you end up with a lot of extra inefficiency, duplication, inability to innovate at scale, and all of that. So it has to look like a matrix, which you know many uh, companies, larger companies, global companies, and other industries, there's a lot to learn from because they've been operating that way for, for decades. So taking some of those tools into how we work with dotted line reporting structures, how we work with very clear processes where roles, responsibilities, handoffs, handshakes are clear, and that that takes more work in and of itself. It sounds extremely calm. Yeah, I might extend Steph's comment, Matt, if it's all right with you, to say that having lived for 20 years as a 
a regional business unit leader. And then in the past year, standing up this new business unit that we'll speak about uh, dedicated to innovation and sustainability. I think Steph's points are really important when they're, especially when they're tied back into the enduring principles that started with Jerry's product and investment strategy, which was long horizon, durable excellence in everything that the firm produced and operated, long-term investors. And so the organizational model, the incentive model, really from the beginning, encouraged collaboration and a longer-term thought process, the sharing of investor candidates, the, uh, the sharing of information on tenants that we would now call customers. And I think, as Steph said, that is flourishing now in a more powerful way as the firm's gone global and into investment management because we we have to have an even more tightly aligned set of incentives and intentions in order to be able to scale across 30 countries and 400 cities and four product types. It, to take the right measured risk for investment and development activities, you know, you can only really do that at scale if you've got strongly aligned interests organized around long horizon thinking. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the other themes of leading voices this is really, really interesting, but and it's been a theme in my work as a search provider as well, is that I believe that real estate is increasingly sophisticated, institutionalized, that the business platform matters. It used to not matter. It used to be home run hitters mattered the most, but the business platform really winds up equaling the power of the P of individuals at all times, if not exceeding it. And you're describing it, and in part you described it with those three principles that you said that came from Gerald Hines. And companies in their DNA with those principles have the long game horizon. So we're ready to start behaving that way institutionally already, culture-wise, institutional-wise. So it's easier to implement this. Yeah, I mean, the language of, the, of at least for Heinz, the language that Steph and I use and others across the firm, it's really quite refreshing and it's more organized around great companies that have a beloved brand with their customers. And so we now speak about customer acquisition cost and customer lifetime value and things that were unfamiliar to a, an industry that tended to grow up around owning properties and lease contracts and mortgage loans as the primary indicators of success or the ingredients. And I think what Steph is leading us into and what the regional business leaders are really embracing is that we're evolving the company into, into a brand that delivers great outcomes for the businesses we serve. It Makes total sense. I, I like the word beloved. I, I'll use a softer word, respected. And my sense if you use, but the word Heinz within our industry, again, I won't go beloved, but I'll certainly say respected and high quality at all times and me fiduciary. So those words I think come to mind as the man in the street in the real estate business. And starting from there is a great place. And the reason why uh, for fun to press the, that B word is I think that deeply within the hind psyche and now being more expressed more visibly is a desire to think empathetically from the customer's viewpoint backwards. How are we delivering products and services that cause the customer, whether it's an individual resident or an enterprise, to tell others, their peers, that they should choose Heinz when they can and they should be, look forward to what Heinz is going to deliver next. So when we speak of beloved brand, in that sense, it's an opportunity to be a bit more like like an Apple or a Tesla, where you know whatever they do next is going to be terrific, and they're thinking about your needs and, and objectives. That's a fair deal. 
Stephanie, comments to that? I just think it's been so exciting to see the industry as a whole and, you know, Heinz doing our part to lead in this become so much more human-centric and consumer-focused and gone from what I think has traditionally been purely a business-to-business kind of value creation model to recognizing that there are multiple customers in the value chain of real estate and being equally focused on all of them. It complicates our business for sure, Uh but it's an exciting shift that um, I think is a fun journey to be on. And in your place as the chief people officer, are you focused solely on how that affects your workforce and how they're ambassadors towards that? And how much do you think of those same values about your external customers, either investors or tenants? Those are the two obvious ones. Or government agencies, because they better trust you. Yeah, and absolutely. And and frankly, we see the communities that we build in and that we operate in as important constituents. I mean, are the, our physical real estate is having an impact on our the neighbors, the community organizations, everyone who interacts with these spaces. And we see not only an opportunity, but an obligation for our work to make those communities and those cities richer better and more thriving. So yes, we do think about that as well. But but in my work, I'm mostly focused on thinking about, you know, okay, so so if we have our our strategy and our belief on what disruption in the industry is gonna is gonna look like, what are the capabilities that we need among our workforce in order to execute on that strategy? What are the roles on the playing field, so to speak? that are going to create the most value and be the most critical mm-hmm. in going after that strategy. And then how do we get the top talent into those roles and grow a pipeline of top talent so that we always have amazing people to put on the right value creating products at the at the right time. That's essentially what I'm focused on and uh-huh. building a machine that can do all of those things at scale. Uh-huh. Okay, we're going to move to Doug in a minute, but I have a couple questions about this and and some some comments to this. You think that the lever moves at the top, but the lever that affects your customers who come to an office building every day is at the front desk. Mm-hmm. So they're, it's from top to bottom, mm-hmm. and how you walk the talk at the bottom, if bottom's the right word, how it, but it is bottom pyramid, how that affects that and how you can promote what you do is what you say. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know I have personally learned a lot from um, Danny Meyer and his work on Uh hospitality in this domain, and that we as an organization have learned a lot from um, his writing and his thinking on that exact topic, that your customers are only going to be as engaged and happy as your employees are. Because your employees, and especially those employees that are on the front line of meeting customers at any given point, are going to be the people who influence how your customers feel about your company, your brand, the experience of being with you. So employee engagement, employee experience needs to be a driver and a leading indicator of what our customers will experience with us. Uh I did a panel at NAREIT a couple years ago. And on the panel, we had two or three REIT analysts, and we were talking about where value is created. And I was pushing my point that the business platform matters. And so I asked the question of how do they experience not just the P&L and not just the assets, but how do they experience training of people? Mm-hmm. And one of the panelists, good friend Ross Smotrich, came back and said, when I walk the property, 
and I know that property is managed in a way that's consistent with what they say in the boardroom, then I know the message is getting down and I add some value to how I look at that company. I want to invest in them. Mm -hmm. That's great. And that the analysts look at that and see that and feel that. A second story, this is years ago, uh, my wife was in an office building then owned by Equity Office, and the doorman used to would know me. And I'd walk to go get her, and he'd go, hey, Matt, she's not here yet. Let me call up for her. And one day I sent a note to Tim Callahan or Zell or someone and said, hey, this guy's like extraordinary. And he got a plaque of commendation and a bonus. And one day on the street, he came up to me and just gave me a big hug. But that's walk the talk at the bottom. It's a beautiful thing you can accomplish. Okay, let's totally change the subject. Doug, you've come back to the company. What is it that you do? What is this EXP? Is that the word? What is this thing that you're doing? What is your mission? What's your job? What's your goal? Yeah. So it's it was a an enormous privilege and happy surprise when Steph and David and Laura reached out to me last year to engage on some of the things that I was doing as an as an as an individual uh, freelance investor and advisor. In really what I would what I would call professionally the unfinished business of the industry I've grown up in, which is the unfinished business of converting itself with technology-infused customer-centric behaviors that products and service uh, design. And when I was when I spent a couple of years focused on that without the burden of a large company, and then reconnected with Steph, David, and Laura, we realized together that there was an opportunity to take work that was already underway at Heinz to establish a dedicated business unit that would stand alongside but separate from the regional investment and development and management business units and contribute to long horizon venture-based innovation and sustainability. And so in our conversations, it became clear that there was an opportunity and I was delighted to be able to come, come and be a part of it to set up this business unit <clears throat> with clear established intentions and, and desired outcomes. And we call it EXP to express that it's intended to be the business unit that expands the capabilities of Heinz beyond the traditional boundaries of real estate, that explores longer horizon market challenges and deficiencies. And we'll speak a bit about that together, I'm sure, here today. Uh, EXP also explores through venture-based innovation and, and innovative sustainability initiatives the opportunities to deliver expedited exponential outcomes. So a few EXP words in there to suggest the intention. What we do day to day, week to week, is invest and incubate startup ventures that we think solve problems that matter in the real estate industry that are affecting the real estate industry. And we interact with our regional business units to make sure we're getting clear signal as to where the market is not delivering what it should and how we can, uh, how we can invest or create startups that solve that. Uh -huh. And are these startups, there are other real estate companies that have an arm that looks at real estate technologies to invest in. Is this, in, are these investments that must come back into the food chain of the types of properties that you own, operate, and develop? Or are they sometimes broader than for your eventual use? Well, really brilliant question because the the intentions and principles that the Heinz family took on this include the desire to exercise industry leadership beyond the pure benefit of the Heinz portfolio of investors and customers, 
And so what, what a couple of differences with uh, some of the groups we know and respect in real estate who have invested in startup ventures, early stage ventures, uh, in a couple of instances, some of our real estate peers have invested in incubating from scratch, although that's a little more unusual. But the Heinz system is is different in that it's uh, EXP is set up with what we call our global ventures group. To ha- We have an incubation studio, the Heinz Venture Studio, that uh, that actually engages in the market to, to study deficiencies and challenges. And then we can recruit entrepreneurial teams that operate within a studio format with a very rigorous disciplined process to design product solutions around an unmet market need. So that venture studio exists. That's unusual in the real estate industry. And the, the Heinz family believes that its scale, our scale and our connection directly to consumers, customers, allows us to be intelligent and effective at startups from scratch. Parallel to that, we have venture investment capital where we we work across our industry and even outside our industry in early stage venture capital relationships where we can invest alongside others to help grow startups that are already out in the wild, if you will, trying to trying to scale themselves. And then we also have an arm that focuses on, on commercial partnerships where Heinz can find other mature enterprises uh, of scale who are trying to pursue a similar problem like energy transition or or mobility solutions, and we can partner with them to uh, to help ventures come to market and scale. So it's really venture incubation, investment, and partnering. Yeah, about it, um, extending the venture ac- activity beyond Heinz's domain. Cool. And I'm going to ask what this means, what the incubator studio means, and all that stuff. So continue on about explaining this. And in particular, I'm curious what the venture studio means, and give some examples. Yeah, so to elaborate a bit on the Venture Studio component of EXP, it's a vehicle with talented teams that looks at unmet market needs through a customer lens, through a, a very repeatable organized process of accessing customer insights, and then designing prototypes for products or services that look to solve those unmet market needs or customer problems. And then we iterate in a very Y Combinator kind of Silicon Valley manner, we iterate through product enhancements and improvements to continue to test those in, in a early adopter market with customers that we that we know and are engaged with. And then we can price it and determine how scalable, where it should launch first, how scalable it is within what cities, countries, and continents. And then we can confirm the business model. So the Venture Studio is a place that really interrogates all that to try to deliver ventures that can scale in a profitable and sustainable way, not only within Heinz, but outside of Heinz across the industry. In particular, categories like removing friction from the real estate marketplace of products and services and contracts, removing carbon from the atmosphere and from the production and storage and transmission of energy. There are solutions we're incubating now that we think will create better connectivity between underutilized real estate and disengaged workers. They're looking for a sense of physical connectivity and social engagement. So these are all, we think, opportunities for Heinz to utilize our global platform, but with local customer contacts to invent or invest in, in ventures that solve meaningful problems and that, and that contribute to the industry being a better version of itself. Okay. When you started this, I'm thinking office buildings and things that turn lights on and off and entry systems and stuff like that, but that sounds like it's broader deeper than that is. First of all, do you have any examples like that that we can think of a product 
in the office space, because I still think you've also an office company, I shouldn't, because I know we're not talking about that. But is there an office example of that? So in the last decade, there were a number of what people called prop tech ventures. We like to think of ventures impacting the built environment so it can affect cities and citizens, not just physical buildings. But there were a number of prop tech ventures over the past decade that were very helpful in simplifying either the search process for for office were invested in BTS, which has done a nice job of evolving its platform to deliver digital solutions to the matching supply and demand of real estate. So that was a good venture-based uh, uh, success. There are ventures in the past decade that have looked to measure carbon and energy in a way that allows for smarter AI, now AI-enabled tools that can help reduce energy and convert to cleaner energy. So those are some of the moves of the last decade. Our perspective is, after some deep thought and, and market engagement, is that the opportunities of the next couple of decades include how to address aging populations, both from a residential and a, and a commercial standpoint, that the world's aging demographics will require different products and services, some of them tech, technology-driven. The reality of deglobalization, where, where cities and countries want to have access to products and services that are not interruptible by certain kinds of cross-border challenges. So that introduces interesting technology opportunities affecting the built environment. And decarbonization, you know, is is a is a huge opportunity, we believe, because Heinz looks at ESG as an op, as, as an investment opportunity, just as Jerry Heinz from the beginning viewed that smarter, cleaner, healthier buildings were a better value proposition. So we look at decarbonization not as an imposition as much as an opportunity. Cool. I want let's come back to decarbonization in a moment and let's go back to something that you talked about I may have heard this in passing when you said underutilized buildings and getting workers. I think you use those two words at the same time. And one of the things I'm most interested in, and this definitely has a carbon element to it as well, is all of those obsolete office buildings, even especially government office buildings, the ones that you walk in. You walked in 10 years ago, you hated being in them, but now you really hate being in them. Is there something that you could figure out what to do with them that's short of a whole scale conversion of it to multifamily, which is hugely expensive and not always feasible. But are there uses for those buildings in what you're describing? So some of the deeper cultural trends of the past decade that the three of us know include the sharing and subscribing to things instead of owning over long horizon contracts, uh, and also the ability to deliver on-demand services into maybe an uncommon environment. And so, for instance, old office buildings or old space within office buildings, we think there's an opportunity rather than demolishing them, which, of course, your lowest carbon building is the one you have rather than tearing down and building a new one. So we think there are ways to digitally enable existing unused space with pop-up experiences that allow for communities, whether they're work teams or social communities, to utilize that space with services that are delivered on demand so that they can be activated in ways that deliver new revenue and that, again, reutilize or recycle existing buildings and spaces and, uh, and do it in a way that, that can be relevant, as Jeff said earlier, relevant to, to healthy cities. And so we really see ourselves as having an opportunity to activate the S of ESG, socially connected communities, through smarter recycling of buildings and spaces using technology, which, of course, then has, a, as you said, a strong E component to it, environmentally intelligent. Does that make an older, unexciting office building with low ceilings, like a place that 
communities can use in some way through technology, or maybe like the building I think we're in, where you're doing a whole renovation of a building and making it feel better than a new building because it's so cool. It brings the bones up to date. Well, I would use a term that Steph and I have, I think, chatted a bit about, which is the restaging of the office marketplace, using office spaces as stageable spaces where that where you can utilize furniture and technology to activate them is something that our industry has not really taken a good swing at. We actually have invested in and are partnering with companies that deliver what they would call furniture as a service, where with very little notice, you can you can select and uh, and stage spaces with furniture that's sort of purpose purpose built for the for the activity or for the particular team, and we think it's a one way to 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 again recycle and reuse in in a in in a meaningful fashion buildings that uh, that maybe have fallen behind, but but they can be refreshed without demolition. So these are things we're exploring. We also know that the rigor of venture means that there will be dead ends whether it's a particular building or a category where we'll do our best to activate them with digital technology and customer-driven services and solutions. In some cases, we'll hit a dead end if something's not scalable or profitable. Okay, let's stick with this. I want to think about the discussion everyone's having in the real estate world, which is what does office mean? And Stephanie, maybe you start because you're telling people what to do about your offices, let alone your customer's office. So how are you coping with that? How are your people adjusting. What does the future look like? Is it 3.5 days on average a week? Is it 4.2 average a week? And does it matter? <laughs> does it matter? No, I, I think we should, I think we should move away from number of days a week in, in yeah. the office. Um, I think that is, uh, you know, a, a rabbit hole that takes us down an unproductive, frankly, argument with our own employees, right? And, and unhelpful negotiation with employees. What we have tried to do is really expand that conversation to the social contract of you know, being in the workforce these uh -huh. days, which mm -hmm. I think we all know was called into question over the last three years during COVID. And we're seeing that the millennial generation in particular, which makes up roughly half of our workforce, is inherently, I believe, a bit more skeptical about the social contract that they feel mm. they've inherited. And I'm not just talking about physically coming to the office. I'm, I'm talking about what it means to be an employee and what you expect of your employer, uh -huh. what your employer expects of you. And so I think it is very healthy the way that those topics are now a part of, frankly, our day-to-day -day discussions in how we do human resources at you know at this company and at, and at most companies, but the office can play a really helpful role in the value proposition and social contract of being a part of any work community. We see from our own people that what differentiates working for Heinz versus working for another another company is that it feels um, so much more connected and less transactional as a hmm. job. Right. A job can be that. It can be just a job, it, it, which, you know, works for a lot of people. So that is fine. Right. Uh -huh. At Heinz, we strive to create a, a culture and a workplace where this is about a community that you're joining and the relationships that you have here and within the industry are not just transactional. And we happen to have quite long tenure compared to most companies. We invest quite a bit 
in having meaningful offsites, training, conferences, team building that enables people to really get to know one another deeply and work together deeply so that, again, it's not a, a, a transactional work environment. Physically being together in spaces is a big enabler mm -hmm. of that bigger vision. It is mm -hmm. a lot harder to achieve that kind of culture, that kind of connectedness, that, that sort of longevity if we're not spending time together in, in not just together in spaces with heads down and headphones on and on Zoom calls, but actual time um, interacting with one another, learning what someone in a different department is working on, forming you know, relationships with people across the firm. So we've really come at it from that angle, that that's the culture we're trying to build, right? Being together in spaces is a critical enabler mm -hmm. of having that culture. Now, I think there are plenty, you asked me about where is this going? And I think there are plenty of work workplaces out there and companies that think, look, based on what we do as a, I don't know, let's just make it up, digital marketing company or, you know, social media outsourcing company or something like that, based on we, what we do, we can create plenty of value with a, a workforce that is fully remote, we might have higher turnover levels and people who are kind of less connected to the brand and loyal over time. But we actually feel that, that we can provide a different kind of value proposition for our people by having that kind of culture. And, and we can save a whole lot on, on office expense by doing it that way. Mm -hmm. There are and will continue to be companies you know, that choose that strategy. And you know, I think that with the work that Doug is leading us on, Doug and team, uh, we would seek to even provide solutions for those sorts of companies too, where when they do want to come together for a meaningful offsite or, you know, have some flexible and temporary need for a limited amount of space, that there's a way we can we can help those companies too, even if it's not more traditional, permanent, ongoing space that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it's interesting. So questions about how does that differ top to bottom of the organization? Again, we think about the people at the front desk. What does that look like for their requirements or their rhythm of life and their feeling of the culture? That's question one. Question two, and this is the one that us people who've been around for a while, us elders in the business think about all the time, is that if I didn't have 20 years intensely being around everybody... I wouldn't have built my relationships and I wouldn't have built my career. And if I hadn't gone to conferences, I hadn't been in downtown San Francisco where I bumped into people over coffee every single day, then I wouldn't have the bank of relationships and the bank of credibility that I was able to build. Mm -hmm. Now, I work at home alone in Sonoma County, California. It's lovely. But that, that's, that's a luxury I'm able to have at this point in my career, which is really different than a 20 or 30-year-old. So kind of talk through how the 20, 30-year-olds then do become part of the industry. Yeah. Well, I think it's helpful to remember, too, that the 20-year-olds in, in particular, many of the 30-year-olds, too, you know, really grew up in a world where most of the social interaction that they've had has been through media, right. through screens. And that's different from how previous generations grew up. So they are used to a world where it's not necessarily about running into someone in downtown San Francisco for that cup of coffee. It's about pinging them on social media. In order for those generations to be successful over the next decade or two, while Gen X and boomers are still a large part of leadership and a large presence, mm -hmm. you know, shaping our industry, 
those younger generations are going to have to appreciate the um, in-person value of relationships, face-to-face relationships. And that's going to be a skill that not all of them are going to intrinsic or automatically enter the workforce having had. So I, you know, I think about our our talent development group and our our training, internal training and leadership development ambitions. That's a skill we need to to build in people is in-person conflict management and mediation and relationship building. It's it's not something that everyone has grown up with. Okay. So, so, Steph, one of the things you talked about before, the word hospitality came up in the conversation. So think about how you train your people so that that shows up in the work that you do. And, Doug, I have a follow-up question for you on the same line. Yes. Well, we have a, a terrific team that has been leading us on thinking about how to bring more learnings from hospitality into the way we deliver service across any asset type that we that we have, be it office, multifamily, et cetera. And from that, we have been so excited to partner with Forbes Travel Guide as, and I think we are the first commercial real estate industry to, to do so, to set standards and measure standards for hospitality and customer experience in our spaces. That of course requires a lot of employee training and employee uh, you know, equipping our employees with not only the soft skills, but the tools and resources to be able to deliver exceptional service at scale. So that that has been a huge focus for us. And one, one that I think also expands the role of our frontline customer sta- facing staff in exciting ways. And Doug, question for you about something in this, which you had mentioned one of the innovations maybe around leases and the traditional leases, five, seven, 10 years, particularly in the kind of buildings that you guys dominate in the office business. Right before COVID, I made the wonderful decision to move into co-working space. And I had four of us out of 12 people were in one location and we were in industrious space for about four months before COVID hit. First of all, The optionality of that blew my mind and was the best, luckiest business decision I ever made. Let me tell you that. But the second thing was having a four-person office was boring, dull, and kind of sucked. But being four people within a big floor of lots of folks at lots of companies and co-working was really exciting. So one size doesn't fit all, but the traditional office lease doesn't always have to be that way. And I think the world is moving towards more optionality in that regard. Is that the case? And how do you innovate that within the company? Well, you're opening up a a really big barn door, which is the stakeholders in the traditional office property value chain have organized around the idea of long, inflexible contracts and revenue streams and and, uh, bespoke spaces that are built for a singular purpose and, and then demolished and thrown away and replaced five or 10 years later. You'll see Heinz becoming more and more front-footed on a few aspects of the of the new way that people want to work, but actually probably have wanted to work for since the iPhone and cloud computing started, which is to have the option for shorter-term space that is uh, more move-in ready, that is more stageable and restageable in physical attributes for the conduct of work, and to your point, that has options for low, medium, or high social connectivity, both inside your space and with other 
um, in common spaces that uh, that bring together enterprises and workforces from different companies. So we know that Heinz were in deep conversations with venture venture entrepreneurs and our longstanding real estate investors about how to match up a venture mentality of what we often call sort of the the iterative, constantly upgrading nature of software and how to infuse the office work week with the sense of delight and and change and flexibility and choice, but also you know the ability to to select how much connectivity you want and as necessary, pay a premium for more or less flexibility in the physical format and the contract commitment. So we think it's we're excited about it. I mean, we like to say that the EXP business unit within Heinz is an expression of Heinz running toward disruption and change rather than away from it. I think in fairness, our industry has not been as good at running toward the change and instead saying that the customer is wrong. And I think Steph and I both agree that we're we're building up our own workforce with a perspective and a point of view that the customer's right. And if you don't understand what they're trying to accomplish or how feasible it is, you need to be better at asking important questions and giving them choices to, to test in the market. Yeah. It's interesting. When we moved into co-working, I wound up paying a huge premium per square foot. I saved money in the short run anyhow because I had less, you know, I had a tiny, tiny space. I didn't care what the square footage was. It was my outlay cost was, but the optionality was huge. And then also the ability for a tenant to take half the space that they might take and have the have, have half of it be optional and half of it being fixed for a bunch of years. And then you can have all kinds of flexibility to work out business deals and business terms. But then you have to innovate on the lending side and the equity side and everything else. So it's it'll be a fa- fascinating transition. It'll be staged. And Steph and I are lucky again to have a an emerging leadership team that's in a, in a, at a generational stage that they embrace the merging of physical and digital environments. And they know that, as Steph said, that behavioral science would tell you that in real life experiences can accelerate certain important learning and development and therefore business outcomes. But it's also true that there are digital experiences that can be, that can allow us to access global talent, can allow, can allow us to have nimble teams that come together and then maybe disband and come back together later who are not sitting in a place waiting to meet someone that might be useful to them. So we're, I think, Steph, you and I are both of a mind, as is the, the family and the firm leadership, that, that Heinz can deliver solutions and keep listening and learning and adapting to how culture and generations evolve. Cool. So, Steph, I want to turn to you, and then I'm going to come back to Doug and talk about carbon and about the current environment in the investment world. So before we wrap up, and I want to think about what you brought from your training at McKinsey and the perspective you brought as a consultant to help companies think from a big picture to then coming in here and tackling this stuff. And when you came, what was your mandate? What was the excitement that brought you to real estate, which was new to you, and to this particular business? Yes. Well, you know, as I mentioned before, the catalyst really was the family's vision to expand investment management. And the implications of that tactically from a people angle meant redrawing organizational structures in new ways, assembling new teams, bringing new talent into the firm, managing complex organizational change, doing the change management around all of that, redesigning incentive systems. So there was a there was a very large amount of core human capital work to to be done. 
I I just found the family's vision so compelling, and the uh, the the integrity of the firm so compelling, and the uniqueness of the culture that I I wanted to be a part of that vision and driving it forward. So it, it, you know the the investment management work was really my first entry point and a way to get to know the firm you know, very deeply before then thinking about, all right, how do we build an HR engine at scale uh-huh. that is going to be able to ensure we always have a deep talent pipeline, a strong culture, and right people in the right jobs at the at the right time. Since the firm had been quite decentralized, uh-huh. there wasn't quite the size and scale or, or breadth of HR functions that you would see in you know, a, a larger global right. company. So I was also really excited about the idea to build a lot of that and um, and then build on top of some incredibly distinctive total rewards work in particular that had been done, you know, by my predecessors over decades. Uh-huh. So, you know, it was a wonderful combination of being able to build on, you know, build on top of something that has been extremely successful um, and is very unique, as well as um, start from scratch on mm-hmm. a few new things. And we've talked throughout the whole conversation about the Heinz family, and we've talked about culture. They're related. What does the family mean and what does family ownership mean? And now we're in the third generation of family leadership. Talk about that combination of stuff and coming to a company with such a deep family heritage that will likely continue. Yes, it's it's been such a privilege to be able to, you know, watch the family's succession and transition and, and growth over time. Gerald Hines was, of course, the the vision and the innovator who began it all. Jeff played a huge role in expanding globally, diversifying across asset types. And, you know, Laura is now thinking about the disruption that the industry is going through overall and the role that Heinz will will play in that. I know it's also very important to the family that we influence the rest of the industry when it comes to our people practices and our diversity, equity, and inclusion experience so that that we create um, a workplace where we mirror the communities in which we serve and are a place where everyone can belong. So through her leadership, we've been able to make, I think, some fantastic strides on influencing the the industry and, and living out that vision. I think those are all really important elements of our culture. Mm-hmm. And I don't know Laura. So where where does that come from as the place she wants to take a stand? Can you elaborate on that? Well, I don't want to speak for her it's on that. Fair, but it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I I know that as someone who is a um, mother of young children herself and a you know a woman in a historically male dominated mm-hmm. industry, that it has been important for her to not only role model but you know really live the values of being able to bring diverse backgrounds, diverse perspectives, diverse family needs and situations into doing this work. Um, creating spaces for that, which which you know has implications for day-to-day inclusion kind of behaviors. It has implications for HR policies around leaves and support and you know mechanisms for 
for helping people who are going through different family formation times. So those are all things that she's been focused on. And I know, you know, personally has devoted a lot of her time to be able to evolve. It's a fair deal. You actually put three words together, three or four words together that I've had in the subtext, but I haven't just said it, which is woman leading in what had been a male dominated industry. Mm -hmm. And part of the transition that you're helping the company go through is moving from what that was the truth to what's going to become a more diversified business, which is just going to happen across the board. But you can be leaders and be assertive about it. You also have to brush aside the past to do some of that. There's some pushing away that's hard to do. Well, there's there's an evolution for sure. I, I think the you know the good news when it comes to talent practices is that good DEI talent practices are really the same thing as just good talent practices. Mm -hmm. So being thorough about when you about interviewing someone based on their capabilities, what they can demonstrate mm -hmm. versus their um, uh, what clubs they've been a part of or you know what their um, uh, kind of prestige has been over time. I mean that in is in and of itself, going to give you a better, more accurate sense of who this person actually is and what they can achieve. It also will yield more diverse candidates because it's not screening out people who over decades haven't been part of these clubs or these societies and things like that. So, you know, we've been able to really focus on just day-to-day -day practices, not only diverse um, pools of candidates for jobs, uh -huh. but diverse panels of people doing the interviewing right. has been shown to yield much more diverse outcomes. Uh -huh. um, so things like that about our day-to-day our -day practices have been really important. And so I wouldn't call that throwing away the past uh -huh. necessarily. I didn't say throw away, push aside. Push it, or I wouldn't call it pushing <laughs> okay. aside the, the past. I would just call it bringing a, a rigor to talent practices that is not only going to get us more diverse outcomes, but it's also just going to get us richer, more higher quality talent outcomes. Yeah. It's interesting. When I started in search, I had a couple of searches that were, one was very precise, had to be a guy between 35 and we had a 42 year old candidate who wound up winning and he was called the old man. Oh my God. And it, but it, that's what it had to be, fighter pilot kind of people. And then I had another client. It was, I only respect people who are captains of a sports team from an Ivy League institution. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I am not kidding you. Well, it's also always been shocking to me how much age is discussed in this industry. Because uh -huh. I can tell you in other industries, no one talks about age. No one. Especially not in hiring. You know, uh -huh. you would never bring that up. But it's a part of... It's part of the industry vernacular. How old you are, I suppose, is meant to correlate with what your, the depth of your track record or the, you know, length of your pattern recognition or something uh -huh. like that. But I think we should remind ourselves that it doesn't necessarily always correlate to that. Someone with fewer years of experience, you know, who's younger, can have had some very impressive, you know, reps, let's say, yeah. and and built a very impressive pattern recognition over a surprisingly short period of time. And so, you know, in a lot of industries, you have people who are younger than their bosses and, you know, vice versa. In real estate, it seems like it's always the other way around. I'll also take it the other way. And Doug alluded to this a little bit with changing demographics is you may wind up having more older workers sometimes now coming into the workforce and coming into roles for with whom we had prejudice. Sorry, you're 62. You can't do this. 
But that may start happening more and more because people are going to stay in the workforce until they're 70 or whatever the ages are going to be. It's going to be fascinating. I'll kind of channel my inner Steph. So I just would say, Matt, that the learning and development opportunities for when, when we have for the first time in human history, five generations that are conducting work in some fashion. I think, Steph, what we're trying to build with our certainly our office workplace portfolio of products and services and with our own workforce, as Steph's saying, we're trying to build this habit that is unusual for real estate, but we think really part of the future that the office workplace and work week should be a learning machine where knowledge and wisdom is transmitted both old to young, young to old, you know, medium to medium. So I just think that Steph, I know you and I are excited about some partnerships that we have with higher ed, partnerships with great behavioral science teams. We think that it's time for real estate to really enter in to the modern expectations really of of consumers to have the workplace be someplace you can not only get smart good work done but you can advance your career you can build relationships you can extend your work week through digital tools so we're, we're excited about the future but it's going to be hard work matt yeah and doug as you say that how much of the statement be uh, how much of the head behind your statement was heinz and how much was behind what heinz can bring to your tenants so that they can behave that way? Well, again, I think Steph will start with us. We need to be good yeah, at, at what we claim is important with our own workforce, city by city, country by country, and continent by continent. But we do intend to exercise not a sole, solo role, but a very partnership-oriented role with tech providers, higher ed, corporates that are doing great work in learning and development. We want to be really a hub of sorts, both in our workplace products and properties, but also in our mindset, we want to be a, a connector of that that benefits certainly the workforce in the cities that we operate in, but um, more broadly, the industry. Cool. Doug, let's come back to climate. So you started, said some comments before that really matter. And as you know, uh, August is August was our third annual month of climate discussions on leading voices. So we've done three years in a row because carbon, the real estate industry built environment is 40% of global carbon. And like it or not, we got to do something about it. And we will be doing something about it because that's just the money's going to demand it. The tenants are going to demand it. Thoughts about that through your portfolio and then through your future work? Well, from a top line standpoint, I'll just return to some of the verbiage that Steph and I were referring to early in this conversation, that Heinz has multiple stakeholders, including customers who use our products and services, capital providers that invest or lend alongside us, and communities that we operate within and ask for their blessing or cooperation in trying to deliver real estate products and services. And with those stakeholders, we know that we need to exercise visible leadership and intelligence about how to transition as quickly as we can using capital and engineering excellence and partnerships to turn real estate from being a primarily a consumer of brown energy to a consumer of greener energy, and in some cases, a producer and storer of energy that can be utilized in cyclical, you know, with, with cycle intelligence during, during seasons or times of day. So we're really excited about the venture-based innovation we're doing that's connected to our global ESG team, which is designed to deliver investment intelligence for how and what to buy and how to operate to move away, away from carbon to new future energy sources. 
that Global ESG team interacts every day with our venture team who's looking at investing or incubating technology and startups that can contribute to first getting the data, organizing it into matching it up with deployable technology. And then again, trying to change some of the behavioral patterns of our own teams, the occupants of our spaces who use a lot of energy and have their own chain of carbon. And then over time, we we are very visibly working with other industry stakeholders to advance the conversation. You know, we're we're of the mind that this is an opportunity. The world has gone through difficult transitions in the past. This is one, maybe one of the biggest, but there's so much ingenuity when you when you're in the venture-based innovation arena that Heinz now is more more entrenched in, embedded in. It's actually really encouraging to see the incredible innovation that is not even yet fully scaled or deployed to enter. I mean, we're, we're, we may invest in a company that can take, that uh, basically can install panels and convert air into potable water. You know, so when you talk about water tech, you know, we've got opportunities to deal with all kinds of green energy from geo to, you know, just of course, geo and thermal and wind, but other kinds of really inventive technologies that can convert or produce energy cleaner, store it for the right times of day and season, and deliver it. So we're very, we're very big on the opportunity and, and want want to, and in a sense, it's an extension of the work that Jerry and Jeff Hines did in the past to lead out on healthy buildings and healthy property services under the U.S. Green Building Council of the 2000s and other organizations that have advanced the cause of, of using materials and services in a cleaner way. Mm-hmm. And Steph, as you think about workforce and the different stakeholders, I assume that commitment's a meaningful part as you bring in people to come so okay, I can be aligned with it. Yeah, our employees are very focused on this and, and excited about it. And in a great way, we have people coming out of the woodwork in both formal and informal ways looking to get involved and, and help. There are some ways where we do need every single person who works at Heinz to learn some new skills, bring those to bear in their daily work. There are other ways where people might have opportunities to you know, do a rotation or change roles or work on a special project mm-hmm. that is connected with doing something really innovative in the space of decarbonization or ESG in general. And a lot of that is happening on people's personal initiative. You know, I, I, I This is a firm where if you see an opportunity and make a great case for it, uh-huh. a compelling case, mm-hmm. the firm loves the firm loves that from our people, right? And and we can give them the the runway to try something new, both with their career and you know with the with a great business topic. So it's important for our people. Provides a lot of. I don't momentum. know how to respond to that. Oh, Siri. <laughs> Siri's confused. Siri's confused. About I don't know carbon. about yeah. Our people like it, but Siri, I don't know. I don't know about Siri. <laughs> It's interesting. One of the things that we're all learning is that we might have thought that the area of carbon would be on one part of the business or two parts of the business, but it's in asset management, it's investments, it's in construction, it's in design, it's in lighting, it's in everything that we do. And so everyone plays a role in finding answers to that. It's a team sport. It's team sport. (laughs) Doug, before we wrap up, we are at a Difficult moment in the real estate business with interest rates at not an all-time high, but have moved from an all-time low to a little bit higher than normal rate. Transaction market is really stuck at the moment, especially in the office business, but you're broader than an office company as we know. Any thoughts about 
you're starting up your part of the business, A, and then B, Heinz's posture during this period of time that will be a low transaction volume period of time until we reorient to rates and cap rates. Yeah, this is um, it's a challenging moment for traditional real estate metrics, but we view it, our CIO, David Steinbach, certainly views it as a really healthy season for a firm like Heinz, who's organized to be agile and entrepreneurial in a distributed management format and has an innovation team now that's dedicated to venture-based investment and incubation because the real estate investment marketplace, certainly for larger scale properties, has repriced itself in a way that we don't think is going to snap back to former metrics of what we would consider to be relatively simple wealth creation by just building something at a particular yield and then selling it for a lower yield and a higher price and you're done. But instead, as David calls it, we're moving from 30 years of downhill skiing, where point your tips down and it's a fun ride, just try not, try not to fall. We're moving into an extended period of cross-country skiing, where it's time to do the hard work of delivering more remarkable services that are more customer-focused, with better feedback loops, better technologies, partnerships. So having the, having the dedicated team at EXP with our Global Ventures Group and the Global ESG, we think it's going to position Heinz to really play play very well within this um, period that many people are wringing their hands and saying, gosh, it used to be so fun and easy. And the answer is maybe it was, but now it's harder. And the, the best owner operators that are most customer obsessed, we think will thrive. Yeah. And think about the best owner operators. So let's put you in that category and think about the buildings that you have, but think about the buildings that are adjacent to the buildings that you have that really matter to your value anyhow. And so particularly in our downtowns, and I come from the Bay Area where it's more challenged than other places. There's not as much live work play downtown San Francisco as there is, say, in New York or Philadelphia. But how do you rise the tide of the boats in those areas where you don't own everything, but you're going to influence it. Any comments to that amongst all the subjects that we both, three of us have had so far today? Well, Steph, you can build on this. I think what Heinz, certainly in the venture-based innovation arena, will be moving toward is delivering technologies and, 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 uh, and business models that can remove friction and increase choice and connectivity in the built environment so that Buildings that are reasonably well, well located, but maybe have been undermanaged can be restored to relevance. Buildings that are perfectly fine, but are just full of all kinds of friction in the way that they operate and the way they transact. And they're opaque to other market participants that might have reasons and ways to use them that are not traditional. We can create, we think, digital solutions and ventures that'll help networks, if you will, within one metro area you know, or even a, a larger extended region, we think that we can at least give every building its best shot and every landlord its best shot through some technologies and ventures that are not so solely for Heinz. Um, beyond that, Steph, I think we certainly want to be part of creating socially activated programming and, um, and signal to our city, the cities we operate in, you know, that we want to be a catalyst, you know, for uh, restoration of, you know, healthy city life. But some some cities have a longer row than others. With regard to all boats rising, there is a critical mass effect that happens mm -hmm. socially with return to work. I think that employees, of course, want they want autonomy and choice over deciding 
what their work schedule is and how they come in. But in general, I believe they also want to be where other people are and they mm -hmm. want to be in places that are thriving. Yes. And you have to get to a critical mass of people there before it starts to feel that way and then tip the scales and invite a lot more people in. So I think one way all boats can rise is if you do have some assets in the CBD that have been able to create these dynamic, these activated spaces, the more people see, oh, wow, there's energy there. There's stuff going on there. I'm lonely. I would like to be a part of that. Right. That's going to help all boats rise. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, fingers crossed. We have a lot to do as an industry and we are city builders, not building builders at the end of the day. Last question on leading voices is always advice for a young person getting into the real estate business. And Steph, I'll let you start. Hmm. Well, I like to emphasize to any person entering our business that generalist mindset, I think, is a very valued and continually important Thing for success here. Of course, we have many specialized roles and, you know, within Heinz, we continue to have specialized groups, specialized departments. But one of the things that has made people successful over decades long careers that I've observed has been a true generalist mindset and wide curiosity to, um, you know, be open to new things beyond your immediate um, kind of span of control or daily work. And and have a little bit of a scrappy mentality where no job is too small and I'm responsible for the whole uh -huh. here. I'm responsible for the outcome. I also think for a, a lot of people, that's an inspiring way to work, right? To feel responsible for a whole, responsible for an outcome, not just a, a, a small piece of a uh -huh. larger process. So having a generalist mindset is something I would encourage. So let me push on generalist mindset because part of my advice to people is always know your business and develop a skill set. And my belief is that most people in real estate develop a skill set coming up one of the disciplines. Be really good at your discipline. Now, those people who don't look beyond their discipline to know the rest of the business in context, therefore generalist mindset really matters. But someone who shifts from every discipline and may not be deep in one I think it's also a limitation. I agree. I agree. I think there's a difference between skill set and mindset. Cool. Having a generalist mindset doesn't necessarily mean that you could do any job within the organization well. Right. You need skills, and in order to build real differentiated skills, you have to have a lot of reps and a lot of time in exactly those skills. But I think this is why I love rotational programs uh -huh. and why we are investing in an early career rotational program for graduates at Heinz is that the broader perspective it gives you on problem solving. So, you know, the ability to even extrapolate and, and, and the, the ability that gives you to solve new problems that you haven't seen before mm -hmm. is so valuable. So I think the mix, and you know, I, I'm a little bit biased towards that because a lot of my formal fundamental training was at McKinsey where I went from project to project right. and they purposefully put you on topics that you know nothing about so that you can develop first principles problem solving. Yeah. That is a skill in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree with you that young people need to focus on learning a skill, learning a trade, mm -hmm. um, but being open to exploring other ideas and other things and, you know, dipping your toes in other waters can really help. I use a different word. I use the word context as well. Mm -hmm. So if you know what you're doing within the context of the whole, 
then you really know what you're doing. If mm-hmm. you just know what you're doing, you're in trouble from my perspective, or you're not going to grow that much. Well Similar concept. Well Doug, comments? Well, at the risk of sounding like a preacher, I'll use alliteration here. I would say to my younger self, listen, learn, and launch. And by listen, I mean ask better questions rather than being focused on having the smart answers. You'll learn more from customers and other peers. Uh, Learn always. Treat everything with humility, in particular going outside our industry to learn from other industries that have lessons uh, that are applicable to real estate, especially in this cycle point. And then the launch mentality is, I know it sounds uh, particularly focused on venture-based innovation, but you know the the famous leader of Amazon uh, has a mantra that every day is day one. And so if you have a venture mindset that today is the day to invent or advance something better than yesterday, I think that's something we could probably import into real estate that's good for young professionals. We need it. And it's interesting. Again, we just said same, some of the same comments, which is without knowing the outside world and without having the context of the business, you don't know where you are. So, and for what you're doing, particularly in carbon, to be able to look to innovation outside of real estate and to see what other industries are doing to attack this and then bring that in and back and forth. It's great. Wonderful stuff. So thank you both. This has been a great conversation. I really, really appreciate having both of you on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Matt. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them. And add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leading voices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices. Thank you.